Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. Some of that early stuff that I now understand as red flags, I not only did I not pay any attention to as being potentially problematic, but I actually gleaned onto as though my life depended on it, right? The fact that he was jealous and thought that other boys could be into me as well. Wow. The fact that he cared about what I wore because he didn't want me to tarnish my reputation, that he didn't want me to be friends with certain people because they were no good for me, that he wanted to spend all of his time with me and didn't want me to go to the parties any longer or the sleepovers, that if I loved him as much as he loved me, all that would matter would be one another. I was all over it. So as far as I was concerned, this was perfect. And I worked really, really hard day in and day out to prove that I could be the girlfriend that he needed, that he wanted, that he could trust. And so when there were moments where I would get in trouble because I was talking to another boy at my locker or because I was a few minutes late to pick him up and I was being accused of stopping somewhere along the way, or because I didn't call him the second that I walked into the house, those things I ingested again as being my problem. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Jessica. Jessica's story started in high school with a boyfriend who seemed amazing. He was the class clown, a football player, and very into her. In the early years, she was able to explain his problematic behavior as expressions of his love for her. There was no physical abuse at first. If she just tried harder, his behavior would stop. Then when the violence came, it was only when drinking. The alcohol was the problem. If he could only eliminate that, those things wouldn't happen anymore. Then just as her father died, she found out she was pregnant. The physical abuse stopped and the behavior that remained could be explained away with the stresses of having a baby. They got married shortly after and life felt somewhat manageable until the physical abuse began again and brought new levels of daily torment. He monitored her every move. He installed cameras in the house. He had eclipsed every good thing in her life. It wasn't until her third attempt at leaving that she finally got away, but real freedom didn't come until her husband was sent to prison. With him gone, she felt things should be better, but the hole inside her remained, and with it came a string of destructive relationships until she finally did the internal work necessary to find a stable and healthy relationship. Today, Jessica is an internationally recognized healthy relationships expert, speaker, trainer, and certified professional coach with more than two decades of experience. She is also the co-founder and president of the nationally recognized nonprofit, No Silence, No Violence, and the former president of the San Diego Domestic Violence Council. As you've probably guessed, this is a very heavy episode, but I truly enjoyed my time with Jessica. I've had the pleasure and privilege of being able to watch her career over the last decade and she has done amazing things. And she's also teaching people how to have healthy relationships, not just rescuing them from the bad ones. I think this is a really important part of the work that's being done. We need to teach people how to be in relationships and how to have healthy connections, not just save them from the unhealthy ones. We have a ton of resources in this episode. If you're struggling, please reach out. Without further ado, I give you my friend, Jessica. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. 
Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Jessica, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. It was really honored to have been asked. So I want to talk a little bit about your story. You've done incredible work in the domestic violence space, and most of that comes from your experience being in a domestic violence relationship. I think one of the pieces that I think is really important to talk about here is how people get into these relationships and why they feel like they can't get out, and then some of the statistics around how deadly domestic violence relationships can be. I think most of us don't know about that. I'd love to start with a little bit about your story and, and, and where you grew up and how you saw yourself. So I grew up in what we would all consider a kind of a normal, traditional family. Uh, my parents were married for almost 28 years before my dad passed away. My dad was an attorney uh, as a second career. My mom was a social worker. So we talked about thoughts and feelings and analyzed all sorts of things in my household from, from the time that I was really small. We joke still that one of my first words was inappropriate, at, you know, less than two years old. So yeah, I think for all intents and purposes, grew up in, in what we would consider a relatively normal middle class to even upper middle class family. I know now as a part of my own healing journey that certainly unintentionally also grew up in an environment where there was there were a lot of expectations around my performance, around what I was interested in, around my ability to excel in school and make certain choices for myself. And so from a really, really small age, I remember recognizing that when I behaved in certain ways, made certain choices, did well in even preschool and beyond, I was deserving of love, attention, affection, etc. And then I also remember having very early experiences of feeling like a disappointment or unseen or unimportant when I made mistakes or did less well in school or didn't care about the things that were important specifically to my dad, who was very much about education and career and for good reason, wanted to set his his kids up for success. And the ways in which he knew how to do that was by really focusing on those few things of which I had other things that really mattered to me um, and that I was more invested in. So I think, you know, early on, and again, a lot of this being in hindsight, I watched the relationship between my dad and brother look really different than the relationship between my dad and myself. And I ingested all of those messages as being about me. I wasn't lovable. I wasn't good enough. I needed to, to hustle for my worth, to sort of perform my way into being loved. And when I made, made a mistake, when I fell short, I believed that I was undeserved of those things. As I then moved into pre-adolescence, adolescence, and started to date and gain interest in boys and begin to have experiences of early relationship, when boys wanted to date other girls in addition to me, I was happy to just get whatever I could. When boys dropped me because I wasn't good enough at soccer or wasn't pretty enough or didn't dress well enough, I was also very accustomed to, to that being my story. And when there was a problem in the relationship, I was 100% willing to accept all of the blame and believe if I could just do better, be better, act better, show up better, then ultimately the outcome would be different because that was the story that 
I, I had created based on some of the early experiences that I had that felt really, really true and really real. So I had a couple of experiences of relationship prior to meeting my now ex-husband, of which really fell into some of the categories that I've just described. Boys wanting to date other girls in addition to me, being broken up with because I wasn't good enough at this or pretty enough for that. And when then my boyfriend who I think we were high school seniors, declared that he was into me and wanted me to be his football star, class clown, super charismatic, really well-liked. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Some of that early stuff that I now understand as red flags, I not only did I not pay any attention to as being potentially problematic, but I actually gleaned onto as though my life depended on it, right? The fact that he was jealous and thought that other boys could be into me as well, wow. The fact that he cared about what I wore because he didn't want me to tarnish my reputation, that he didn't want me to be friends with certain people because they were no good for me, that he wanted to spend all of his time with me and didn't want me to go to the parties any longer or the sleepovers, that if I loved him as much as he loved me, all that would matter would be one another. I was all over it. So as far as I was concerned, this was perfect. And I worked really, really hard day in and day out to prove that I could be the girlfriend that he needed, that he wanted, that he could trust. And so when there were moments where I would get in trouble because I was talking to another boy at my locker or because I was a few minutes late to pick him up and I was being accused of stopping somewhere along the way, or because I didn't call him the second that I walked into the house, those things I ingested again as being my problem, right? Damn it, Jess, if you could just figure out how to do better and be better based on what three-year-old Jess believed to be true about who she was, then we'd be okay. I went off to college. There certainly had been an increase in what, what I now would define as emotional or psychological abuse, but there was no physical abuse for the first over two years of our relationship. And when I began in college to learn about domestic violence and when people would talk about domestic violence, I conceptualized it as black eyes, broken bones, bruises, right? And so it was really easy for me to excuse the reason that we have increased tension in our relationship is we're now at two different schools. The reason that we have increased tension in our relationship is that we're not spending enough time together. The reason that we have increased tension in our relationship is that his feelings of jealousy have expanded now that I have access to all of these other young men and I can understand that. And so if I can just be where I say I'm going to be, and if I can make sure to get to his apartment that was an hour away most days of the week and spend all of my weekend time with him, then, then maybe some of the arguments will decrease. The first physical incident of abuse happened after I transferred back to San Diego for college. I remember it very clearly. I also remember um, that he had been drinking um, the next morning when we woke up. He declared before I could even say, you've crossed the line. What I did was completely unacceptable. We've had fights way bigger than this. If I was actually an abuser, this would have happened way before now. I think it's related to the alcohol. I'm going to stop drinking for a while. You know, some of this runs in my family. I'll get help if I have to. And if this ever happens again, I will suggest that you leave me because you deserve so much more than this. And for the next many months, things were really great. I was convinced that not only was this physical incident a result of alcohol, but without alcohol in the picture, I had the relationship that I dreamed of and it felt good and I felt connected and alive. And in the meantime, keep in mind, all of my high school friends had washed their hands with me. You obviously have no time for us. We don't understand what you're doing. This makes no sense to us. Work or over it. And I had no opportunity to make any friends at college because literally all of my time was spent in my relationship. And so he was my 
primary and my only attachment at that point. So you were getting feedback from the outside that something wasn't right about the way that this relationship was playing out. Is that right? I was getting feedback. Yes. Not that people were specifically concerned about anything that they were seeing, but you're no longer making time for anything else in your life. feels like you guys are, there's constant sort of drama. And yet I also had other feedback where friends were saying, yeah, we fight a lot too. Or yeah, when I started dating my partner, like we spent all of our time together also. So I was able to really minimize in my own brain, a lot of the input that was coming toward me about sort of what didn't look or feel right, because I also had other information that really sort of helped me to feel like I could validate the experiences that I was having. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, and you've done so much work on this topic. If you were looking back and describing some of the things that, say, someone who wonders if they're in this type of situation is listening, looking back, what were some of the things that weren't the normal tension or drama or, you know, spending a lot of time together? What were some of the key things that that you would now tell someone else to be aware of? For the first couple of years, those signs looked different, right, than the next couple of years. So as it pertains to those first few years where there had been one single incident of physical violence, and yet the majority of what we were experiencing would be categorized as emotional or psychological abuse, or things like, I don't know that I had a cell phone at the time. I didn't have a cell phone at the time, but I remember having to forward my landline to anywhere else that I was going to be. So if I was going to study in someone else's room, I had to forward my landline to their room so that he could get a hold of me at all times. I remember running from my class back to my room because I knew that he was going to call me right when class ended and I better be there. Otherwise, I was going to be accused of doing something that I shouldn't have been doing. I remember constantly being accused of messing around with other guys. And yet there was absolutely no evidence of that. And so I would feel like I was having to sort of constantly prove my sense of trustworthiness when really there was no realistic information that spoke to the fact that I was being unfaithful. I remember being really mindful of what I was wearing because I would be accused of wanting attention or being up to no good if I was wearing something that he deemed as too low cut or that was too short. I also remember being really clear about the fact that I wasn't even going to ask to spend time with friends because I knew that number one, it would absolutely become a fight. And number two, it just wasn't worse than the aftermath of what would occur. And so I remember just sort of it being an automatic no thanks or I'm busy when I was invited to do things. It wasn't even something that I was considering, nor did I feel safe in asking. And so that looking back, but the fact that I didn't feel safe in asking in addition to just sort of not even considering the opportunities that were coming my way also could have certainly been an indicator. That's actually really relatable. I was in a relationship that was had a lot of these characteristics. And because I was using drugs and alcohol, you know, there's a lot of reasons for things, right? And when you're using drugs and alcohol, well, yeah, you're going to make people angry. And, and you look back and it makes so much sense. But while you're in it, while, while you're in the middle of the tornado, it is very, very hard to see what it is that's actually going on. So it's really helpful to have those things like, oh, that happens in my relationship. That's not normal. And and to for people to absorb that. What happened the next? So we had that chapter and then there was another chapter. How, how did that chapter play out? 
So my dad uh, got diagnosed with cancer at the very end of my sophomore year of college. Uh, it was very quick. He was sick for about four months before he passed away. I remember that being a particularly tumultuous time because I was asked by my family and I wanted to be available to them. I wanted to be at the hospital. I wanted to be with my dad. And I was being accused of being someplace else or being told that I didn't love my boyfriend because I was abandoning him in order to be with my family. Or you were just there yesterday. What do you need to be there again today for? And so I remember that being just such a difficult and challenging time for me. And five weeks after my dad passed away, I found out I was pregnant. And so I was 20 years old. My mom had just lost her husband. I had a 13-year-old brother at home. I had really no friend attachments at the time, with the exception of maybe one or two who I was absolutely hiding all of this from. And so while I was emotionally dependent on this person prior to all of this happening, I now became physically dependent, right? Because my mom said, as much as she loved me, I am petrified for you. And if you make this choice, while I love you and will continue to love you unconditionally, you're not coming home. You're going to have to sort of figure this out. The expectation is that you continue in school. You're going to have to, to work. And so I became a hundred percent dependent on this relationship. So I had to move off campus. We moved in together. There were no physical incidents of abuse during my pregnancy. I remember actually being in a sociology class at the time and talking about domestic violence, where it was acknowledged that often in relationships where there's domestic violence, that incidents of abuse actually heightened during pregnancy. And I very clearly remember saying to myself, oh, this is not happening in my relationship. And therefore, this isn't what I'm in. This is just about now us having financial stress and stress of becoming parents at 20, 21 years old and having just lost my dad and my then boyfriend trying to figure out how he's going to provide, right? And so there were all of these opportunities to excuse the heightened stress that I was experiencing in the relationship, but really clear about the fact that it wasn't domestic violence. During that time, I very much remember feeling incredibly beat down. Lots of comments about my stretch marks. He'd be constantly out. I had reason to believe that he was dating, seeing other people. There was a lot of gaslighting. I was made to feel stupid or crazy. I was told that I was going to be a no good wife and a no good mom. I had food thrown on the floor, you know, just awful stuff. I was told that I had to vacuum before I was allowed to go outside. He would drive me to and from class. So I had no space for myself. And so I started to get clear about the fact that there were some real problems here. And I also could not see my way out along with acknowledging I'm going to have this baby and I want to give this baby the very best chance that I can at a two-parent household. And how in the world am I going to do this alone? And so my son is born. Things are beautiful for a little bit. We are connected. My then boyfriend is in love with this baby. I'm feeling super hopeful and we get married. I feel like, okay, maybe there's a chance, right? That we're going to have this really great family. Things are going to work out. We're going to be able to figure this out. And then as my son became a handful of months old, the physical incidents of violence began again. The drinking increased significantly. There was some sort of physical incident every day from that point forward. Then I was really clear about what I was in and felt completely stuck. And so not only was I being monitored constantly, I was watched going to the laundry room. I was driven to school. My miles were clocked to the grocery store. I had, you know, very little connection at that point. There was a camera in our apartment. He would star 69 the landline to see who I had talked to while he was away. I then like was really clear about what was happening and felt totally isolated, totally alone, financially dependent, threatened constantly about 
my not having access to our son if I left and monitored in a way that wouldn't have even allowed me the space if I had chosen something different. I also began to believe, as all of our brains do when we are ingesting messages over long periods of time, right? They become our truth, that I wasn't no good mom, that I wasn't no good wife, that I was stupid, that no one else was going to love me, that I was an absolute loser, that I couldn't survive without him, right? And so I believed that story to be true. And all of that not enoughness that existed in me from the time that I was really small was now just bigger. So I finally left the first time when my son was about a year and a half. I went back, left and went back another couple of times after that for a few reasons, right? One is I was, I remember having trouble like literally buying milk on my own a second time because my then husband declared that he was going to counseling and had a mental health diagnosis and was going to be getting some support and that that was the reason that he would have behaved the ways in which he did. And then third, I remember just feeling like things had gotten even harder um, with my being apart from him. I was being called, you know, a hundred times a day with constant messages and he was showing up in my apartment parking lot, et cetera. And so I, I remember also feeling like, gosh, it's almost easier to just be together. I know how to manage well enough. I know how to keep myself safe well enough. And it just feels like so much more work to, to have to maneuver all of this and still feel in fear. And so um, that third time um, I left for good. And uh, over the next couple of years, there were a multitude of police reports on file. He was constantly calling my apartment and hanging up. He would show up in my apartment complex. He would threaten me during exchanges of our son, all, all sorts of things. And so I remember the police even on a couple of times saying, Jessica, don't you think that you're overreacting? Like we come out here multiple times a week for these exchanges. Sure. Like he gets big and, you know, says these things. And yet, is this really necessary? And so I felt not only sort of isolated and alone, but then totally unprotected as a result. He went to jail um, on one particular occasion um, during that period of time for about eight months. And after attempting to run me off of the road following an exchange. Because um, your son in the car? My son was in the car, uh -huh, in the backseat. And then as he went to jail, would call Colette and, and say, you know, at at that point, like, I finally understand that we're not going to be together. I'm ready to let you go. I want to be a better father for our son. I'm going to do a better job here. I want you to feel safe. I want him to feel safe, etc. And when he was released, we were offered the opportunity to do supervised visitation at a center. And we did that for a handful of months and things were going really well. And so the court system said, we're not paying for this anymore. He obviously has access to your son. Like you guys need to figure this out. And so for the next while, we were exchanging at his family's house. For the most part, things went great. He, he might make remarks when my son showed up with his face dirty or that potty training was taking too long or that I was five minutes late or that my son was whining too much and it was because I was babying him. And yet if that was as bad as it was going to get, I was in great shape, right? And on occasion, we'd even take my son to the zoo together or I'd stay and have dinner. I felt like if, if we can maintain this, like I can deal with this. And then many months later, um, so by this time, my son is now four and a half. So over two years after filing for divorce, uh, he called me over to his family's house to get some money. Um, I hadn't been receiving child support. Uh, and so he on occasion would say like, I've been working under the table or I have a little money. And so in the middle of my work day, I graduated college and had a pretty good full-time job, was making ends meet, went over to get the money. And on that particular day, I was raped and saw and uh, held against my will and spent the next many months in trial. He was convicted of an, a number of things and spent about 21 years. I think one of the things that strikes me is how there's this feeling like 
you almost get to safety or you're almost there. There's there, there are these moments where something might turn a corner and then you get there and it's the same old stuff or it's escalated and and how you went for so long with a good relationship, right? Going to the zoo and, and this, and then you show up and this this incident happens. And most people don't actually get a conviction. When when I think about your story, so many things come to light. Number one, you're sharing a child. How do you give your child over to this person? They have rights. How does that work? You're making police reports with someone you have to interact with. So they're getting more angry. But if you don't make the police reports, then you don't have proof if something happens. They're being incarcerated for the thing, but then getting out and now now you have to do this all over again. How does that work in our system for women? Is there a way for women to be safe when leaving a domestic violence relationship, especially if you share a child? Where we were 22 now years ago and where we are today are are somewhat different. We have made some significant strides in legislature and policy and law enforcement training in the services that are available, et cetera. And so that's a great thing. My experience then may have looked a bit different today. And we have a long way to go. I would be mistaken to say, oh, yes, there are ways that a survivor is able to be 100% certain that they can remain safe and keep their children safe at all times should they decide to leave. That's not fair. That's a setup. And what I can say is that when working with professionals in this field, that there are a lot of things that we know to be true and that we have access to in order to minimize risk and in order to access the kind of support that is going to be imperative, whether it be legal support or um, shelter support where they are in a confidential setting, whether it be support around working with an attorney who understands domestic violence to limit access to the children and ensure that the kids also have access to trauma therapy, et cetera, right? So lots of ways in which we can minimize risk and there is risk attached. What did you do after that experience? So he gets convicted. You still have your son who must be five, four and a half, five. And you basically have to almost start over life as this new person. What did that look like? And and how have you used what happened to you to build a new life for yourself? I was under the impression that he was now gone and I was now safe. And like I could just step into this new life, erase all of what I had experienced and we could start over and I would be good. And so that is the way that I trudged forward. It didn't work uh, all that well for me. (laughs) You mean you can't just start over and forget the past? As much as I tried. So I continued again. I was an expert in performing well. So I was working up like the, the professional ladder. I was program director, project director at 25, 26 years old. From the outside, people were like, whoa, you've really got your shit together. And like you, you are thriving, right? Who would have known that you had been through what you had been through? And internally, I was a hot mess. And I was also looking for connection anywhere that I could find it, right? Because as human beings, when we have two options, unhealthy connection or no connection, we are all landing over here every day of the week. No connection is not an option. I was looking for connection and yet continuing to operate from this belief of my worth and value being attached to what I could do and be for others, right? And so um, whether it be through sex, whether it be through paying for all of our dates, 
whether it be for being willing to be, you know, the, the side chick while this person was out with other people. If you weren't hitting me, I was in great shape. And so that is the way in which I continued in my life for a long while um, until I couldn't anymore. I was dating my boss at one particular moment, one of my finer choices. We both got let go. And that was an opportunity for me to really, I was rocked. And I had a moment where I sort of looked myself in the mirror and said, what in the world are you doing? And got really clear. And by the way, simultaneously had met a man who was really healthy and like also felt very straight laced, very boring, very vanilla, was not into it at all. And so between those two things was like, you've really got some work to do here. And that is when I stepped into my healing journey, which was five, six years after my ex had gone to to prison. And so that's when the work began for me. And I did more than four years, I think, of very, very deep work in order to uncover the truth about sort of how it is that I had landed where I did, as well as reclaiming parts of myself that had been lost long, long ago, or that I had never had access to, rewriting my story about where my worth and value comes from and where it doesn't. And healing is not linear, right? So I also, while that changed me for for sure, I have had other moments along the way over the last many years, including up until, you know, a month ago where I recognize, oh, there, there, that thing is again, or, oh gosh, I thought I had worked through that and I'm feeling it today. Or my body is really talking to me. What's going on here? And why am I feeling unsafe? Really also learning to just be compassionate and gracious with myself, not judge myself or allow myself to to spiral into shame when I'm having those moments has been incredibly important for me. And I do a good job of it most of the time. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, friends. The Courage to Change endorses many paths to recovery. This is why Lion Rock has a promising new treatment method for substance use disorder, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is a progressive new treatment plan that uses ketamine in a supervised setting that assists in both substance use disorder recovery and continued recovery. The NIH concludes that ketamine is a useful tool to help people struggling with substance use disorders, and it can facilitate abstinence across multiple types of abuse disorders. It is also extremely effective in treating anxiety and PTSD when it's paired with psychotherapy. Lion Rock's unique approach of pairing licensed counselors with the medication is the true success here when treating substance use disorder. Most other companies are simply sending ketamine to their clients and offering guides. Lion Rock treats the whole person and this new treatment option for substance use disorder recovery and continued recovery continues to show great promise. So if you are interested in Lion Rock's ketamine-assisted psychotherapy program and you want to learn more, go to lionrockrecovery.com. Under programs, scroll down to the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy tab. Now back to the show. What is the experience of sharing a child with your abuser? So this is an area that I'm going to sort of tread lightly around because I recognize that my son, who's now an adult, has his own story around this. So I share differently today about that than I did when he was much younger, as I've come to sort of recognize his right to privacy in some of this. So I'll share about my experience rather than his experience. It is incredibly challenging to walk the line of 
recognizing that there is biological connection that continues to at some level motivate opportunity for relationship and connection and love while also wanting to protect that, right? So we are taught, many of us, right, who have experienced any sort of separation in relationship where there are children involved and and maybe not relationship abuse. We are taught that like we don't badmouth the other parent, right? That we're really careful about honoring the other parent and really protecting that relationship and really supporting the relationship. And so walking that line when there are also concerns around safety, et cetera, can be really, really challenging. So it's super complicated. It's super complicated. I've done the best that I have known how to do in offering the space for whatever my son chooses and supporting him and reminding him that he has the right to change his mind and also acknowledging that his dad has loved him and continues to love him in the very best ways that he has known how, period, and that he is entitled to his own thoughts and feelings and desires around that whatever they may be, and that we can talk about as much of it as he wants to, or as little of it as he wants to. And that seems to, I mean, number one, we're super connected. That seems to serve him better than in moments, especially in his younger years, where I was really sort of trying to force that connection, both because I was trying to protect myself, right? Like if I don't allow you access to your dad, I become to blame for that. And so then I'm punished in addition to wanting him to have that opportunity. I've been able to watch you for the last 10 years on this journey, on your your professional and, and, and personal journey with helping people who are experiencing domestic violence of all types. Where were we as it relates to domestic violence and, and kind of where yeah, I'd say as a country or a state, however you want to describe it, uh, when you started and where are we today and where do we need to go? Yeah, great question. So I launched my first support group in 2007 um, as a part of my own healing journey. I felt really alone in those early years and wanted to simply provide a space where we could look to the left and right of us and know I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. If they can do it, maybe I can too. They're a couple of steps ahead of me or they're way ahead of me. And so I can I can harness hope, right, as a result. Um, and maybe I can begin to build even friendships or relationships with people that I don't have to constantly explain myself to, who I feel really understood. And so that first support group had 68 people. Wow. And back then, there were not a ton of spaces that were spaces where there was total safety, no judgment, no agenda, no bias. And so we are at a very different place when it comes to that specifically. Um, We're doing a much better job of shifting our language in order to ensure that we're doing less victim blaming, in order to recognize relationship violence as community responsibility, in order to really ensure that we are not minimizing survivors' experiences. We have done and continue to do, it, to do a ton of training with law enforcement around the ways in which they're responding when there's an incident of domestic violence. And so what I saw coming into support groups way back then, just the frustration around no one's believing me, the frustration related to I'm being blamed for this by my family by my friends, in addition to those who maybe I don't have a personal connection to. Lots of stories about, you know, I'm, I'm being belittled by law enforcement or they're refusing to show up unless I do something different. Those sorts of stories are happening much less. And we have also absolutely put additional dollars toward organizations to not just provide support to those who are in crisis, but to also do a lot of front-end education. So we have done a, a really good job, and there's more work to do, of implementing education into the school system, right, where we're talking about 
healthy relationships. We're talking about consent. We're talking about mutual respect. We're talking about red flags and warning signs, all of which is interconnected. And we have a long way to go. There's there's more work to do. What are some of the things that you train law enforcement on that you've found to be particularly helpful? Three things, if I had to sort of compartmentalize. Sure. First and foremost, we have, all of us have an opportunity to be an experience of safety and security for a survivor, whether our exchange is 30 seconds in length or a relationship that is occurring lifelong. When we talk to law enforcement about the ways in which we plant seeds in a 30 second exchange with a survivor, it's as simple as things like making eye contact, validating a survivor's story, allowing them to finish rather than interrupting, acknowledging that law enforcement has access to resources and asking the survivor what it is that they feel may be important to them rather than if you don't choose something different, I'm going to stop showing up. Or at some point, this becomes your fault. Or this is the third call out. What can't you see, right? Or why are you still here? All of those things that, again, create can create real frustration and confusion for law enforcement and without training absolutely can create harm or cause harm that first and foremost is sort of most important right is this idea that we can be safe and secure connection in these very sort of what feel like minuscule exchanges that begin to plant seeds of maybe there is something different available to me. Maybe I am deserving of being shown up for. I I feel seen in this moment. I feel heard. When we start to plant those seeds and our healthy connection bucket starts to fill up, then our choices become unhealthy connection or healthy connection rather than unhealthy or none. And at the end of the day, that's what our work is about. Right. I love that. And I think the education piece is so important. I would imagine that if it were me and I were showing up to these calls and the person didn't leave, but was being harmed, how frustrating that would feel. Not because I'm a bad person, but because I don't want to see this person get hurt anymore. And I keep showing up and I feel powerless. There's so many situations where people on the outside looking into a domestic violence situation feel powerless and their response to feeling powerless is anger, you know, frustration, judgment. And and I know in, in my experience with people, friends of mine who've been in more psychologically abusive relationships where I've said, you know, I just want you to know that you don't need to be talked to that way. You don't deserve to be talked to that way. And that it's abusive the way you're being spoken to. But there is frustration because it keeps happening. And just having to deal with that frustration away from the person. Yeah, you're spot on. And that frustration is a really normal human reaction and response. I do this work day in and day out and I have moments of frustration. I have also been through this. I understand it. And I have moments of frustration. So really just sort of acknowledging like it makes sense that we have this response or reaction. And there are places where we are able to express that. And then when we show up for someone who is dealing with this, there are other ways in which we're able to be supportive. And there's nothing wrong, Ashley was saying, it's hard for me to continue to hear you talk about the ways in which you're being hurt, right? It makes me feel sad. It makes me feel scared. And I am here to support you unconditionally. Or like, I don't necessarily understand this. It feels really hard to understand. It's so clear to me that you're deserving of something different or better. And yet, no matter what you choose to do or not do, I will continue to be your friend. I will continue to love you. There's room for all of it. 
With people who are in situations like that, when that happens to people, it's all consuming. It is the biggest thing in their life. And particularly if they have children, it's, it's, there isn't much else that goes on as the family and friends who are trying to be there unconditionally. It also feels very toxic to hear about it or to be around it or to see it. And and oftentimes the person doesn't even realize they're talking about it because it's so normal for them that even though you may have set a boundary that says, listen, I can't hear about this unless we want to talk about it differently or whatever it is, it still seeps out because it's just their whole life. How do people interact with someone who and support someone who's going through that without feeling like they're absorbing the toxicity of what's going on? Because I think a lot of people retreat from those relationships because they say, I I can't help you and, and being around you is toxic. Such an important question. So there are a handful of ways and each person will get to decide for them what makes the most sense, right? A few things that I have found to be really helpful and that others that I work with have found to be helpful are creating time boundaries. Let's get together on Friday afternoons from 12 to 1 for lunch. And that allows me to know that I then have the space Monday through Thursday and Saturday and Sunday to not be in a position to absorb, right? A lot of what's happening for this person. So that can be helpful. Also making statements like, I love you so, so much. And talking about this relationship feels really painful for me because of how much I love you. And there are other resources available to provide you with a safe place to talk about this as much as you need to. And those places can show up like in a really unattached way. And I'm happy to support you in accessing those places or spaces. That's number two. And one that's probably really important for a variety of reasons. And then third being really being able to sort of state really regularly these messages of, I love you unconditionally. I see your worth and value. I care so much about you. And talking about this is taking a toll on me or continuing to talk about this is affecting my ability to be in connection with you in the ways that I want to and that I know are so important to you. And so can we together work on setting some parameters? So as a parent, one of the things that is interesting and and what we're calling this generation, you know, is the the surveillance generation because there's such an ability. I mean, I, I know us 90s kids joke about, you know, our parents had no idea where we were. They didn't have any way to get a hold of us. And now you know, we have GPS, we have all sorts of things to be able to see each other, whether that's through any of the social media things. It's so much easier to track people down, to track down addresses, etc. In some ways, that's very helpful and, and useful. And I would guess that in a domestic violence relationship where, where that's occurring, that leaving a relationship might pose more problems as a result of these ways to surveil and that living or living a life where you have the choice to be out in public, be on social, that kind of thing is not as available to you as it might be to other people. Can you speak to how technology has affected this group of people? Big time. And it's not just about leaving the relationship and it being that much more complicated. Um, It's also about being in a relationship with access to the kinds of technology that you've just spoken to, right? If I am at work and 
a few people are having lunch on a particular afternoon and take a picture of all of us having lunch and post it on social media. And my partner sees that I am supposed to be at work and he has told me that he doesn't like me hanging out with this person, right? Then I have just been put at risk and it may be unbeknownst to me, right? I may not even know that that picture has been taken or posted. So it could be as simple as that in addition to my partner knowing where I am every moment of every day because they require that the tracking device on my phone be on, et cetera. So it is really complicated in a variety of reasons. And you are correct. Leaving and and then remaining safe following, it becomes that much more complex. It doesn't mean that there aren't ways to do it. There is just more to consider, right? And so a lot of our organizations today really have an understanding around the importance of disabling the, the location tracker, right? As a part of safety planning, the removing of all social media accounts or using fake names, certain applications that we can use in order to erase our current address and that continues to monitor for that, right? So one of the reasons that it's so important that a survivor be connected to a professional who really understands a lot of this and or an organization that houses a multitude of professionals that can sort of work in each of these spaces is that much more imperative today uh, because it is complicated, but it is doable. I talked to so many people who experience sexual childhood sexual abuse, so many people, myself included. We always talk about healing. We always talk about what we're going to do and how we're going to help these survivors, but we also need to talk about prevention. <laughs> and yes, we want to help people who, who've been hurt, but also we need to talk about how we want to prevent people from either having access or feeling the need to or whatever it is. And I think that goes with domestic violence stuff. There's the people who are raging on their partner, whether physically or emotionally, don't know what to do with that, don't know how to be. I'm sure your ex, whatever it is, didn't know how to manage a relationship, the anger that that came out and is horrible as all of that stuff was, it was a really maladaptive coping skill. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, and the trauma that he experienced from the time he was teeny tiny is unimaginable. So I can have a lot of empathy and you're a hundred percent correct. We can continue to put a bandaid on this over and over and over again. And if we're not simultaneously addressing some of the, the things that we're needing to do in order to be preventative, we're really missing the boat in a significant way. Right. We're just waiting for uh, victims and survivors to, to get well, but we, we, we just never talk about how we can prevent some of these things. And, and I think that that is that that's part of the solution. Like you said, that's just really an important part of the solution. And I hope people consider that when they have a spouse who's raging on the family that that's teaching the next generation that raging in a relationship is okay. And while your spouse may not touch you and your kids, who's to say that that your your child isn't going to be someone who abuses someone else? Like it's more it's more than just you and your microcosm, you and your family and and what you're willing to put up with. It's also what you're teaching the next generation and the people they're going to touch. And if we think about it, like you said, as a community, this is a community issue. And if we think about it as a community, we start to I think it's easier for many of us to think about other people than ourselves. 
And so if we can think about the community, oh, this affects the community, then maybe we might be more willing to do it than it is than we would be to help our own personal situation. For sure. And you, you talked early on as we first began chatting about sort of wanting to talk about statistics, like yes. how, how often is this actually happening, right? And this feels like maybe a good segue into that because it is not a small portion of the population who is experiencing or has experienced domestic violence. We are talking about a significant portion of our world. So statistically speaking, the likelihood of those who are watching this listening to this, either being impacted directly or knowing someone in an intimate way that is being impacted directly is basically 100%. Because one in four women have experienced physical abuse in their lifetime. Can you imagine what that means in terms of the number of women who have experienced emotional or psychological abuse, right? Those of us that work in the field would say one in two. One in 10 men have experienced physical abuse. Two in five gay or bisexual men and women have experienced physical abuse in a relationship. 10 million children in the United States every year witness abuse. And so we are not, we are talking about an epidemic, right? We are not talking about a small portion of the the population. And for that reason, my suggestion often is that we make an assumption that when we are interacting in our communities, whether it be in our work, with our neighbors, with our friends, with the person at the grocery store, the assumption should be this person is being impacted or has been impacted by domestic violence. How does that change the way that I want to show up in this moment? And so when we talk about connection being medicine and filling up that healthy connection bucket, that means that I'm making eye contact with every person that I'm engaging with so that they feel like they're deserving of being seen in the moment in which I'm engaging. That means that When I ask, how are you? I'm hanging out to really offer the space for an intentional and vulnerable response. That means that if someone is sharing something with me about I'm having a hard day or my relationship's feeling hard, I ask additional questions and I sort of infuse messages of, I I have no agenda or attachment to like what you share. And I have no expectation around what you choose or don't choose based on what you are experiencing, right? That I can just practice some of this language in a way that makes me a safe landing place. And if we all we're practicing that, the likelihood of these healthy connection buckets filling in a way that number one is preventative and number two becomes interventative in a really important way, super significant. We have opportunities every day to change the way in which a survivor is experiencing themselves, which is what has to happen in order for them to choose something different in their relationship. What are some of the resources, both resources for people who are experiencing any kind of abuse or domestic violence, and also resources for people who want to contribute and help in, in you know, either financially or, or otherwise? I know that, that this program will reach people from all over. So the the number one resource that I like to, to really refer to is the National Domestic Violence Hotline because the folks that answer that hotline, which are who are available 24 hours a day, have access to resources all over the country in the most remote areas to the most populated areas and resources that really run the gamut from legal support to support with food to clothing to counseling services, etc. So they're really a beautiful place to start and anyone can call the hotline. So a professional can call the hotline for resources, a family member can call the hotline for resources, or the survivor can call. That's a really great 
place to begin. So some of the resources for people, because I didn't, I didn't know that. There, so there, there are legal resources, financial, food, clothing, shelter. So if you need to leave a situation, there are resources to help you from A to Z. That's right. All of it. And no silence, no violence. My organization has really positioned itself to sort of be the gap filler, right? So we don't take any state or federal funds in order to be able to say yes to the things that larger, more traditional nonprofit organizations have restrictions around. We actually work with a lot of national nonprofits who are able to provide a free restraining order clinic, but can't provide legal support for someone who is engaging in a long-term custody battle. We can. They are able to provide diapers, but there's a three-year-old who wants to play t-ball. We can make sure that that happens. There maybe is an organization that has 20 shelter beds and they're running full and they rely on us to provide an Airbnb or motel room until they have space open up. So we really sort of look at ourselves as the gap filler to ensure that the variety of needs are able to be met. So the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. You can text START to 88788 in order to text with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Well, I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing your story. It's an incredible story. The work you've done is incredible. And I just, I I admire the hell out of you. So thank you for being here. And thank you for all the work that you do. And I, I hope that we can see you know, much improvement in this space. Thanks so much for having me, Ashley. And uh, always a pleasure to be with you. Hey, everybody. Well, Scott, what did you take from that episode? That's a tough one. All of our stories, I feel like they have some really challenging elements. But that one, I am familiar with this topic from the work that my wife does. But even just hearing the statistics again, you know, the idea that there is a 100% chance that somebody that you know, intimately, personally, have a close relationship with is is struggling with this in some way, shape or form, you know, that it's one in four women, that it's one in 10 men, you know, all those statistics, when you just like look at a room and you think about all the people that they're just like trying to sit in the space and do their job and all the other hard stuff everybody else is having to do, but having that kind of playing in the background. I hope with every episode in this show that it changes the way you interact with people, just that you don't know. You just have no idea what's going on with anybody. So you might as well treat everybody as if the worst is happening. I hope that it gives some empathy to people in who they're interacting with on a day-to-day basis. The relationship that I was in that was violent, I was a teenager. When I think about that situation, I wasn't married to him. I was a teenager. We didn't have kids. I mean, I cannot imagine what it would feel like if I had a child with him. And it just, it really reminds me that there are so many complications that people don't understand from uh, when they look at the situation, they've never been there and that we really can help people by providing resources. I love how she talked about like just making eye contact with people. And it wouldn't have occurred to me that that would make such a big difference because I haven't been in that headspace for so long. So it's really helpful to think about ways that we can be helpful and contribute, not just hearing the story and 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 thinking, wow, that's a really wild story, but also what can I do on a daily basis to contribute and, and to feel like maybe I can just help someone's day be just a little bit better, just a little bit better. Yeah, I think there's really something there about the eye contact thing and not something that I had really thought of. But it's if the message you're receiving over and over again every day is like you're nothing, everything that's happening is your fault. 
you know, all these sorts of things, then naturally you're interpreting people's lack of eye contact with them agreeing. Some of those basic things that are about, I still love you. I still accept you. I don't see you as less than. I don't, I don't blame you in this. I, I am here because the idea for the abuser often is just isolation, isolation, isolation. And let me get everybody who cares about you and could be a support mechanism away from you so that you're easier prey. And we unwittingly can fall right into that. Yeah, it's really, it's really wild. It's, it's wild to have been on the inside of it and the outside of it in, in some form, because what I experienced was that he got into my head in a way that was really wild. And I, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that since then. And he spent a lot of time conditioning me to be really, really afraid and telling me what other people were thinking, that other people told him things, what everything meant. You know, he would take me to remote places and scary remote places where it was extremely dangerous and leave me in a parking lot there in the middle of the night and tell me like that if I called my parents, my parents were going to send me away because they were already going to send me away. And so I didn't have anyone to call. I would wait there and then he would come back and rescue me over and over and over and over again. He would create really scary, dangerous scenarios that would show that the, the people around me were against me. When that's your experience, like they're helping shape your, your worldview. Everything is so distorted and you don't don't know that that's not normal or that that's what's happening. And you, it's like, you can't see your way out of a paper bag. I have continued to be surprised at who ends up in those relationships. It can happen in a moment of psychological weakness or pain or hurt. And I think about all the different people out there who are at these points, these psychological pain that they're experiencing and they're looking for relief. And here comes this knight in shining armor or whatever the circumstance to rescue you. And we're all just trying to be rescued. And then we find ourselves enslaved. And it's wild to me how prevalent that is. If you hear something in this story that sounds like you or sounds like your situation, we can go ahead and go on record and saying like, it's not your fault for the situation, that there are ways out. There is hope that there can be a different life than what what's going on right now. And we care. We hope that you know, maybe this is the moment where you decide something that you might have been unsure if you we're strong enough to try or should try, like maybe hearing something in this will resonate with you and you'll internalize the idea that you are strong enough to come through this and that there is hope uh, on the other side. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are here. If anybody wants to reach out, happy to connect you to any of the resources. No Silence, No Violence is a really great organization. Uh, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, you can call at any time. You can text the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 88788. You can call them at 800-799-7233. You can also text 911. I don't know if people know that. There are so many resources. Reach out for help. You're welcome to contact our podcast. The email were podcast at lionrock.life. You can find us on Instagram. Please just reach out. We are thinking of you and rooting for you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. 
Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.